0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit NorthMonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, they just do such a great job every week, but I got to tell you, I was a little bit nervous this week because, you know, they sing this song, Open Up the Windows, and after a while, they open up the windows. And then today they were singing Tear Off the Roof, and you never know with music people what they're going to do. And I'm like, this would be a really bad day to tear off the roof. Fran Beach has been running our nursery volunteers for as long as I can remember. She sent me an email this week of a new volunteer in the nursery, and I just wanted you to hear it. Fran had written, thank you so much for agreeing to serve. Looking forward to meeting you. The new member said, perfect, thanks. I got baptized a couple of weeks ago and it's only because my kids were able to go to the nursery that I was able to hear God's word. I'm very thankful for all y'all do and happy to help. May her tribe increase because she sees the connection between serving and people coming to Jesus. And the truth is we couldn't do what we do without people serving in the nursery. We couldn't do what we do without people serving everywhere. This is a church that's filled with servants. And because of that, I believe that we're fulfilling the Great Commission and the Great Commandment because people are serving all over the place. And That's really the calling of the church. We're going to look at John chapter 13 this morning. Before we go there, I want you to go over to Matthew 20 and to remember this priority that Jesus lays down for His men. He said this, Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to Himself and said... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Then look at verse 26. It is not this way among you. In other words, that's them, not us. That's how the world operates. It's not how we're to operate. And then he says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. I once heard a guy say, you should never call a guy a great servant. He said he's one or the other. He's either great or he's a servant, but you can't be a great servant. And I get where he's coming at because real servants don't really care that much about being great. But at the same time, it seems to me that that's exactly what Jesus is saying, that if we want to be great, that if, if, if we want to understand what greatness is within the, the, the economy of God, within the kingdom of God, then we have to identify that with service and so I'm okay with saying, hey, that's a great servant. In fact, I think there are great servants all over this place who are making a huge difference in the kingdom of God. And so I think that guy's wrong. I think, I think we can be great servants, and I think that's what God wants us to be. Because look at verse 27. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That word is doulos. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is really, if you think about it, what separates the kingdom of heaven from the kingdom of this earth. This is what separates the church from the world. It's really our attitude, not just towards serving, but toward this whole idea. Because, you see, the world measures people really on on this scale of dominance. And the idea behind that is is that uh, if you're powerful... If you're famous, which creates power. If you're wealthy, which creates power. If you're beautiful, which gives you access to power. Um, if you're super intelligent, again, same thing. All of these External traits that we tend to measure ourselves with tend to be the thing that the wor- that the world measures himself with, and yet God seems to be saying here that He measures us by how we serve. And Jesus demonstrates this in a very profound way uh, in, of all places, at the Lord's Supper when He initiates the Lord's Supper. So John chapter 13, let's go there and let's see what He does. Um, it says now before the feast of Passover. So this is verse one. So, so it's Thursday night. Jesus is about to take the Passover. We're going to talk more about that next week. Um, But it's Passover time and Jesus will take the Passover and He'll turn it into the Lord's Supper. They're not the same thing. The Passover was the Jewish ceremony remembering the deliverance of Israel from from the Egyptians at, at the time of the Exodus. The Lord's Supper is for the church to remember the sacrifice of Christ and to call that out until He returns, right? And so it's the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father... And I love this part, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you see that? And I think not only them, but that's how he loves us. That word is telos. It's where we get the word telescope. It means to see to the end, but it's more than that. It means not only the end of a thing, but the completion of a thing. And so if you put that together, he loved them completely to the very end. And that's how he loves you. That's how God loves all of us. And when we're in that relationship, I would say, too, that there's something unique and special about that, that God loves everybody, for God so loved the world, right? But He loves His children, those within the kingdom of heaven, those within the body of Christ. He loves them completely and to the end. And there's a little bit different meaning and understanding of being loved by that. And look how He demonstrates His priorities. During the supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him. Now, Judas... Every one of the Gospels tells us that Judas has already betrayed Jesus before the Passover. He went to the Jews. He made the deal for 30 pieces of silver. He would turn Jesus over. And and that's going to be important in a minute. So we'll come back around to that. But knowing that that's all in play, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came forth from God and was going back to God. And there's something here. I really think is seminal to our understanding of of what it means to be a servant, and that is Jesus served out of a sense of personal security. Notice he says that God has given all things into his hand. In another place at the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. And so this is a sense of, I know who I am. I know who I am in God. I know who I am in, his, uh, in, in relationship to Him. I have power and authority by virtue of the fact that I am one with God, right? And he says, knowing where He'd come from and where He's going. And I'm thinking, all of these things are very important to us if we're going to take up the mantle of being a servant, because servants essentially have to be secure. So you need to know who you are in Christ, And you need to remember where you came from. There's this beautiful verse that says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the pit from which you were dug. And sometimes some of us need to look back at the pit that we got dug up out of. Because one of the problems in the church, and I've said this before, when you've hung around the sanctified long enough, you start to act a little sanctimonious, When you're among the holy, you tend to get holier than thou. And it helps us to look to the pit from which we were dug. But we also need to look ahead to where we're going. He knew where he came from. He came from the throne room of God. And he's going back to the throne of God. And for those of us who are in Christ, secure in our relationship with Christ, we know where we're going. Paul said, in the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not only for me, but for all who've loved His appearing. And so you know what that means? That means that, that this world is just a temporary stopover. In fact, the Bible called uh, believers in the first century strangers and aliens. We're just passing through, y'all. This isn't home. So don't fall in love with the scenery. Remember where you came from and remember where you're going. And in that process, I become secure enough to serve. And that means no matter what happens to me, and I know where I'm going. And that means whatever your opinion is of me, I know where I'm going. And that gives me the security to serve because you have to be secure to serve. Insecure people can't serve because they're too busy needing affirmation. They're too busy trying to get the spotlight on themselves. They're too afraid of somebody throwing shade on them. And so they're always trying to keep the spotlight firmly placed on them because the minute it shifts off, they lose their sense of security. If you want to serve, you've got to be secure in that. Otherwise, somebody may treat you like a servant. <laughs> Insecure people can't handle that. I heard a guy say this. The true test of whether you're really a servant is how you act when someone treats you like one. Isn't that true? Charlie Pride's one of my all-time favorite country singers. Kiss an angel, good morning. Is anybody going to San Antonio? You know, Charlie Pride. He had 70 million country records. Songs sold, uh, had over 24 number one hits. Charlie Pride was big. Like, he was, uh, for a long time, the only black country western singer in the Hall of Fame. That was Charlie Pride. And late in his career, For a variety of reasons, most of which had to do with his family, he decided to move to Dallas, Texas. And he moved to the north end of Dallas, not into the more ostentatious neighborhoods, but a nice neighborhood in North Dallas, beautiful home, not overly showy or anything like that, just moved in the neighborhood. And the story is that the first day he moves in, he's out mowing the yard in the front of his house, and his neighbor comes out and she sees him mowing the yard and assumes That he's a yard guy. This black dude in North Dallas, 1960s, must be the yard guy. So she says to him, When you're done there, would you come mow my yard? Can you imagine Charlie Pride? Do you know what he does? After he finishes mowing his yard, he goes over and mows her. And then he walks up, knocks on the door to introduce himself, and she says, How much do you get for mowing the yard? And he said, well, I do it for free so I can live with the woman that owns the house next door. (laughs) And I thought about him, and that's why he's one of my heroes, because it didn't bother him when someone treated him like a servant. You know, that's a true test of a servant, isn't it? Jesus got up from the supper, this is verse 4, laid aside his garments and taking up a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, this was never done. It's hard for us to understand this. This would be like Donald Trump washing your feet. It was never done in the Greco-Roman world. Powerful people never condescended to anyone else. It just wasn't done. Everything was based upon the notion of power. And you would do nothing that would in any way undermine that. And yet here's Jesus, the Lord of glory, who's become the incarnate uh, manifestation of God in the world, is now humbling himself enough to wash the feet of these people. It's just so unheard of. And everything about this runs counter to the natural order. You see, because this world, we live, really, it's all about this dominance and superiority. That's what it's all about. Uh, In fact, Jordan Peterson in his uh, book 12 Rules for Life calls it the law of dominance, which I think is really a modernized version of Nietzsche's will to power, but but there's truth in it. The law of dominance is deeply ingrained in people. And Peterson does this whole thing with lobsters. He says that lobster brains operate very similar to human brains. Did y'all know that? I can't imagine why that would be true. And I don't know for sure it's true, but that's what he says. And he's an expert, so I'm going to take his word for it. But he said, what happens is because lobster brains act very similar to human brains, but they're far more simplistic than human brains. Human brains are so complicated, and the synapses are so dense and diverse that it's very difficult to map a human brain that will map a lobster brain instead to sort of understand how interactions happen. He said, and there is this law of dominance among lobsters where the big lobster tends to dominate, and because he dominates, he gets all the best stuff, right? And so what'll happen is lobsters, a big male lobster will challenge another lobster. And typically it's one of those who's got the biggest claws and who's, you know, a bunch of chest bumping that you might see, you know, a bunch among human males. And uh, usually it's like clear right away. Uh, that guy's bigger than me. I'm going to leave him alone. But every so often they'll get into it and they'll start to scrap and fight and somebody will lose an arm or somebody might lose a claw. And what's interesting is what happens to the defeated lobster. That defeated lobster will then crawl back to his rocks and the, the, the chemistry of his brain will begin to change so much so that he begins to curl up within himself And uh, Peterson wrote this, When we are defeated, our posture droops. Uh, We face the ground. We feel threatened, hurt, anxious, and weak. If things do not improve, we become chronically depressed. Under such conditions, we can't easily put up the kind of fight that life demands, and we become easy targets for harder-shelled bullies. Low-ranking lobsters produce comparatively low levels of serotonin. This is also true of low-ranking human beings, And those low levels decrease more with each defeat. Low serotonin means decreased confidence. Low serotonin means less happiness, more pain and anxiety, more illness, and a shorter lifespan among humans, just as among crustaceans. Higher spots in the dominance hierarchy and the higher serotonin levels, typically of those who inhabit them, are characterized by less illness, misery, and death, even when factors such as absolute income or number of decaying food scraps are held constant. The importance of this can hardly be overstated. The dominant male with his upright and confident posture not only gets the prime real estate and easiest access to the best hunting grounds, he also gets all the girls. Guys, here's the secret. Stand up straight and stick your chest out. And, and they'll assume you're a dominant lobster. Because female lobsters are drawn to dominant lobsters in much the same way that human females are drawn to dominant males. And so the question is, how does she know that that's a dominant male? And the answer is... Rather than waste all of her time trying to figure out whether he's a dominant male or not, you know what women do to understand the the place of a dominant male, according to sociologists? They watch the other women. And when they see other women that are attracted to a specific male, they then instinctively, intuitively become attracted to that same male. You want a case in point? How about this? Travis Kelsey... Travis Kelsey was by all measures a dominant male, no question about that, he's an NFL football player, he was a tight end, he's a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, he's big, he's virile, he's attractive, he's got, he, he ticks all the boxes. And while he was a dominant male, only so much so until what happened? Here comes Taylor Swift. And once Taylor Swift notices Travis Kelsey and begins to date Travis Kelsey, what happens to every other girl in America? Travis Kelsey is it, right? And all these little 13-year-old girls now have Travis Kelsey jerseys, and they're watching pro football. (laughs) Peterson said, it's exponentially more worthwhile to be successful if you're a lobster and a male. And dominance hierarchy is hardwired in us, and this is why we compete and compare. It's natural for us to to try to achieve some level of dominance. And depending on your cluster group, this dominance can be measured by wealth, physical uh, attractiveness, strength, fame, beauty, power. And, And what's really sad is oftentimes this will come into the church, and I've seen it. And gratefully, that's not the case at this church, but but I've seen it in other churches. And what will happen is you'll get a, a a person who's a dominant person on the hierarchy scale within the community outside of the church, and they will begin to attend the church, they'll join the church, and the church will begin to defer to them as if they were still living outside the kingdom of heaven. And they will treat those who are dominant in the kingdom of this world as if they should be dominant in the kingdom of heaven, even though they haven't served anybody, even though they may or may not be a spiritual person. And that person will often become elevated to the position of deacon or some elder or something like that. And then eventually they'll find themselves as, as the lead elder or the, or the head deacon or whatever. And, and the, the values of the world begin to become embraced and ingrained in the ethos of the church. And it's devastating to a church. It'll kill a church because the kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of the earth. Jesus said, it is not so among you. Who's he talking to? The disciples. He's talking to the church. It's not supposed to be that way. And here's Jesus washing feet, doing the opposite of dominance posturing. And notice Peter's reaction, verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, why did Peter say that? Here's here's what I think. I think if you had to pick out the best candidate for a dominance hierarchy within the 12 uh, disciples, Peter would be at the top of that list. I mean, by all accounts, he was adventurous. He was... Uh, successful in his in his fishing business he was uh dominant in his personality they called him the big fisherman you know outside of the church in the history of the church outside the scripture uh he was you know the first in he was first in fight he you know cuts the guy's ear off he jumps out of the boat he does all those things that would just sort of epitomize a, a dominant personality and when Jesus comes to him peter like suddenly shuts the thing down. He's like, you're not, and you know, why did he do that? I think it's because Jesus is blowing apart the dominance hierarchy and Peter can't understand it. No matter how many times Jesus had said this and how many times did he say it that we've read it, the first shall be last, the greatest will be servant. It's all through Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament. Read the red letters and you're going to see it. And yet, even though it was said repeatedly, repeatedly to these men for a period of three years, and we're at the very end of the three-year period, Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. Look at what he says, verse 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Isn't it interesting when someone uh, talks to the Lord and says never, things like never. No way are you going to wash my feet. And look what Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And here's what I think he meant. If you do not participate in this, then you're still operating with the values of the kingdom of man. You refuse to embrace the higher calling of the kingdom of God. And if you do, if you, if you're intent on going that way, then I'm not going with you and you have no part with me. And so Peter, as Peter does, wildly swings to the other direction. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, this is interesting. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but it's completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you. Uh, If you're clean, you only need to wash your feet, right? You're clean. And and this foot washing was more than a lesson in serving. Jesus was also tying it to sin. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, that's our first step. When we walk in obedience to Christ, when we realize the nature of our sin and, and the nature of salvation and we cry out to God, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I need Christ to come into my life and change me and forgive me and secure me. When that happens, the Bible says the grace of God comes over our life and completely washes you clean that's the biblical metaphor of cleansing it washes you clean and in that moment you're clean and you're clean forever the righteous man will live by faith we don't we aren't cleansed by by virtue of our performance i didn't earn it i didn't achieve it i received it right for by grace you're saved through faith and when i place my faith in what christ did on the cross i am forever clean but then i walk in this dirty world right And I'm walking around trudging through this dirty world and the dirt like sin begins to stick to my feet. And and I've got to stay current with that. And so every day I'm constantly before the Lord. God, forgive me for the way I reacted to that guy. Forgive me for what I did with my wife. Forgive me for how I treated them. Forgive me for that sin in my life. And what you're doing is there's a constancy of cleaning, not so that you would be clean, not so that you would be saved, but so that the relationship would stay healthy. And in that constancy of relationship, he said, you're clean. You know, you've been clean. You don't, need a, you don't need a whole bath. You just need to wash your feet. And so we're always washing our feet. Better, we're always asking God to wash our feet. For he knew, and he said, but not all of you. And he was then not talking just to Peter, but he was talking to the disciples, and and he was talking about Judas. For he knew, verse 11 explains it, for he knew who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you. And there's a powerful principle here of serving that uh, we need to understand, and that is we don't only serve those that agree with us or share our values. Um, Isn't it interesting Every one of the disciples, let's go back to that. Every one of, every one of the, uh, the gospels says that Judas betrayed Jesus before the Lord's Supper. So the deed was done. All he had to do was follow through to earn the money he had agreed to. And Jesus knew that. He said, not all of you are clean. He was talking about Judas. And yet when it came time to wash feet, how many feet did he wash? He didn't wash 22 feet. He washed 24 feet which means he also washed Judas' feet. And there's a profound lesson there for me because it's easy for me to wash the feet of those who I love and who love me and who share my values, but that's not what we're called to. We're called to serve everyone. And look how he brought it home, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what this is all about? you know what I've done? And here comes the point, point. this is the point of all of it. First of all, great people serve. It's the fact that Jesus did it proves that great people serve. You see, when you're under the rule of dominance, who serves? Inconsequential people serve. Look what he said in verse 12, I mean verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. Rabbi and curios, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, that's exactly who I am. I'm teacher and Lord. But as teacher and Lord, look at this, if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, you say that I'm great. You're right, I am great. I'm God incarnate. And yet what did I do? I served. What does that mean? Well, it means that every single one of us should serve. We're not too big to serve. I don't care I don't care where you stand on the dominance hierarchy in the world out there. In here, nobody's too big to serve. Second, because Jesus served, I have to serve. He said, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. You do what I did. It's my example. Truly, truly, I say to you, slave's not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If I did it, you did it. So... Great people serve. Jesus said, because I served you, you serve them. Who gets off the hook on that? Does the power person? Does the beautiful person? Does the athletic person? Does the famous person? Who gets off the hook? The person with more followers on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok? Do they get off the hook? Jesus said, I did it, you do it. And then finally, and I think this is the beautiful part of it, We're blessed by serving. He said, if you know these things, you're blessed. You know what that word blessed is there? It's Makiros. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the beatitude. Blessed are those. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's that word blessed. And it means not only blessed, but there's an inherent sense of joy or happiness that goes along with it. If you know these things, it's not enough to know them. You got that? I mean, there's a lot of people that know what they ought to do, but don't do it. You're blessed if you do them. Isn't that interesting that uh, 2,000 years before Nike even had the idea, Jesus was already there. Just do it. And what's interesting to me is when I look at this world, that's exactly what I see. We had this idea under the dominance hierarchy that if we could just get more, have more, be more, more people know us, then we would have everything. But look at that group that has that. We call them celebrities or the, the rich and famous how happy do they really look? I mean, on the on the outside, yeah, maybe, but the more you read the backside of their stories, the more miserable and broken their families and their world it, uh, seems to be. And the more twisted and perverted their understanding of what will bring joy into their life. You see, when you've had it all, you don't want it anymore. Uh, there's a proverb that says, the sated man loathes honey. In other words, if I'm so full that uh, I don't, I don't, I'm no longer hungry, then honey just seems nauseating. And that's where they are. They've had so much, they've gotten it all, of all the stuff we thought would really fill us up has just left them more empty. And the only thing they can do now is just twist it off into some perverted avenue, Epstein style. And that's what you see happen. Isn't it interesting how many rich and famous people were on Epstein's plane? Hmm. But the, the happiest people I've ever seen in my life, the people with the most joy, the people with the most sense of fulfillment, the Makiros people, were always the servants. Always. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Can I ask you a couple of questions? And we'll be done. First of all, are you a servant? I mean, if you are a servant, where are you serving? What are you doing? What are you doing with your life right now that's going to make a difference in someone else's life? What are you doing in your life right now that's going to make a difference in the kingdom of God? And then I guess the most important thing is what are you going to do about it If you know these things, you're what? Blessed if you what? Do them. This isn't rocket science. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So let me ask you, what are you going to do about it? Because now you know. Now you know. Would you pray with me right now? And here's the commitment we're going to make to the Father. If God's Holy Spirit is leading you to do this, here's our commitment. God, I'm going to give my life to serving you. Show me how that will allow me to serve someone else. We don't all serve the same way. Show me who I can serve and how I can serve. Because God, I promise I'm going to be a servant. Father, we thank You that Jesus not only gave us the example of serving, but He served us. First of all, He sacrificed Himself and became a man. But even more than that, He became a man that was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And by doing that, he gave us the example of serving. Father, forgive us when the church embraces the same values of the world and we we borrow the same, the same dominance hierarchy and we apply it to our lives here as if we were in the world and of the world. Father, we're in this world, but we're not of it. And your kingdom is different, but not so among you, not here and so Father we want to serve you make us servants show us how to serve and we'll find the blessing that comes through that in Jesus name, Amen our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.